Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, as you know, in each episode of this podcast, I look at some of the work of, of Philip K. Dick. And in this particular episode, I'm going to be finishing up our look at Dick's 1970 novel, A Maze of Death. It's, it's a novel I, I like quite a lot. It's a novel I, I like to pair with Galactic Pot Healer uh, due to some of the themes in the story. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I think this is a good entryway novel into into Philip Dick for people who who maybe haven't read his stuff. It's a short novel. It's it it goes pretty quick. It deal you you get a lot of you, you get a lot of the big greatest hits, I guess, of Philip K. Dick. The religious stuff, the the alternate reality, the eternal return, and all that. I I do think it does it does. It's not the best, I guess, uh, representation of the totality of Dick's vision, but. You really get a lot of how he feels and what you're gonna, what you expect, and what you're gonna get when you go into a Philip Dick novel, especially those written in the '60s and, and '70s. I think you know stuff in the '50s is is a little bit different, of course. Um, so uh, this novel is about 14 people who get who who come to Delmago seeking new jobs. Uh, when they find that there's really no mission for them there, they start to try to find out. Uh, how to get back, and in doing so, they they start to kill each other. And um, in the last episode, we talked about how how we we saw the characters fight. We're down to almost like half of the original members. I think there's only six or seven left at this point in the novel. And our main point of view character, Seth Morley, has just been shot and injured. And he is while he's injured and recuperating from a shoulder wound that was stitched up, two men in suits come to take him away. This is more evidence that our characters are not, in fact, explorers or settlers or scientists, that they're mental patients, and that this is all just some kind of crude experiment inflicted on them to see how they would react to it. Um, So um, that's where we left off in chapter 12. So in this episode, we'll look at chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 to the end of the novel. And then, as usual, I'll give my overall thematic summary of the story and, and, you know, give my, my overall perspective. So um, let's start with chapter, chapter 13. So this picks up right where chapter 11 left off. Chapter 11, in fact, was incredibly short. Um, and chapter 13 just picks up on it. And Morley is being dragged away by these men in suits while he's still injured. And he talks to the men who are taking him away. And he seems to to be aware of, of what's happening now, as some other characters begin to realize that, that they're not on, if they are on Del Mago, they're there for some kind of crude experiment. They're there to, basically, because they're mental patients who are going to be, who are being tested in various ways, almost like a psychological experiment. <clears throat> now, Seth Morley is able to escape um, and get free of these men, and he eventually takes over the squib. Now this word squib, this is a word, I, I'd have to trace it. I haven't really done this in this podcast, but there's certain words for technologies that sometimes get reused. And I don't think it's a sign that we're in the same universe. For instance, the nosers in this novel are very similar to the jalopies we saw in the simulacrum, but it had a different name. Here, squib is kind of referring to just any um, like short-term 
transit device, like futuristic cars that can often fly around. But in the next hour, we're going to look at our friends from Frolox 8, which I'm just finishing up reading, rereading. You know, there they also use the term squibs to refer to actually cars, and they have tires. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting to do a kind of an overall taxonomy of the technology in Dick's novels. But anyways, he escapes and takes over the squib and flies away. And they try to stop him, and they don't immediately try to shoot him down. But they do try to warn him that he will die, saying that the, 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 the stitch job that uh, Dr. Babel did, he's one of the main characters in the story, the, the doctor of the group, wasn't good enough. And he's, gonna, he's bleeding out, and he's going to die. And that's why they took him away. They took him away to save his life. Um, and while he's listening to this news, in fact, it does seem it might be true because he passes out and he wakes up a little bit later and he sees below him a giant empty city. And here's how it's described. Quote, a great dead city under him. The squib had come to rest at a field up in the moving spire of the higher spires of the city's building web. No movement, no life. No one lived in this city. He saw in the view screen decay and absolute endless collapse, as if he thought this is the city of the form destroyer. So this is kind of important. Um, I, I said before that this novel does have a kind of a thematic tie to Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in that Earth get, is being left behind and humanity has moved off to the stars. In this world, this it turns out to be an alternate reality, of course, but in this world they construct humans have abandoned Earth, and the only people who stay behind on Earth are the people who are mentally ill. Of course, in Do Androids, the people who left behind were the sterile and the, the chicken-headed and the, and the mentally inferior, you know, like the handicapped. Um, in this novel, they are the, the mentally ill who are left behind. But it's more than that we get here. We actually have a city that's totally taken over by the Form Destroyer. And this is a major theme of the novel. It's, it's entropy. It's another novel of entropy. And, and it has a lot in common with Galactic Popular in that way, in that, uh, in that both explore this theme of the relationship between creation and destruction and the cycle of creation and destruction. Here it's theologically framed, that you have a god that creates called the manufacturer, uh, the manufacturer, a god who sustains called the intercessor, um, the walker on earth who helps people from time to time, and then you have the form destroyer, who, who's the destroyer. It, it very much sounds like Hindu theology, but here we have a whole planet that's been subject to the form destroyer. And you almost want to imagine we're talking about the cycles of civilization, the rise and fall of empires and all that stuff. Um, of course, if you, if you travel around the world, you find these, these ancient abandoned cities, you know, per Persepolis, for instance, or, um, you know, in, of the Persian Empire and other ancient cities that, that all that remains of them are the relics. But anyways, he, he does see this and then he finally um, is able to complete his escape after, uh, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a chase. Uh, he's able to use the robot or use the computer to help him escape, to do, to maneuver. I think he even takes out one of the, the pursuing ships in the process, killing someone, which I think was a first for this character. Um, but he eventually is able to escape, and he finds out, he realizes based on the, the, the cities he sees, that he's in, he's in London. So he's eventually able to find his way to get back to the base. He has to chase off the pursuers, but he eventually evades them and gets back to the settlement. So chapter 13 is it's an interesting chapter because we get confirmation that they're on Earth, and the, the hints that were dropped throughout that these are mental patients stuck on Earth, ostriches as they're called in the novel, it's confirmed. 
at least as far as this reality is is true and but mostly this is like a set piece an action piece but it's, it's quite well done and we we have a fairly successful um, chasing we have the threat of the injury affecting seth morley we have him passing out of loss of blood and all that so it's it's a well put together set piece an action piece in the novel and it pretty much really the only action piece we we get in the entire story there's a little bit of fighting earlier on but this is the real um, central kind of fighting scene um and then we get to chapter 14 so chapter 14 is set back at the base and seth morley finally gets his way back to the, the settlement right the, which is where this experiment is taking place and he reveals to the other survivors and again there's not that many of them left let me see if i can get a count yeah, it seems we only have six people left at this point. Um, now, one person, everyone else is dead except for Roberta Rockingham, an old lady, who was also seemingly taken away by um, men in black, men in suits. But what we have left is Babel, who's the, the, the physician, Wade uh, Frazier, who's the psychiatrist, Ignaz Thug, who he, he was the one who shot Seth Morley in the earlier chapters, uh, Seth Morley and his wife Mary, and then the, the leader of the group and the electric, electrical expert Glenn Belsner. So th these six are the only ones still kind of at the at the base, at the settlement. Oh, sorry, we also have Ted Russell, Ned Russell, who is the economist. He also survived at this point. Um, but he reveals at this point that he's been working with the police the entire time, and he's like the inside man in, in the group. And then at this, Thug just turns, points his gun at, at Russell because he has the one gun that they, the group has access to and just kills Ned Russell in revenge for, for that. The survivors then now are immediately back down to, down to six. They agree to fight and to fight against the, you know, whoever is after them, whether it's the police or the, the people at the mental asylum, whoever put together this experiment, they, they commit to... To, to, to fighting for their freedom and survival. Um, but uh, we get some, re they get to some conclusions about the type of experiment they're in by kind of piecing together what they have. Wade Frazier, of course, knows the most because he is a psychi psychiatrist, or he's supposed to be. He says to the survivors, we're criminally insane. And at one time, probably for a long time, maybe years, we were kept inside what we call the building. The building then would have been both a prison and a mental hospital, a prison for the an ex and then Babel, the doctor, asks, what about the settlement? And he replies, an experiment, but not by the military, by the prison and hospital authorities to see if we could function on the outside on a planet supposedly far away from Terra. And we failed. We began to kill one another. That's what killed Tall Chief, and that's what started it all off. You did it, Babel. You killed Tall Chief. Did you also kill Susie Smart? And he denies doing that. And then they, they start to talk. They start to confess who killed what, and we get a better idea. For instance, Mary... Uh, Morley killed Suzanne Smart because she was flirting with her husband. Babel killed um, Tall Chief because he thought that he was a spy. Um, so they, they start to confess this. And what we realize is that these people did jump at the chance to slaughter one another the minute they could. So they tried to get answers, final answers, or confirmation about these conclusions they've drawn from the computer, and they all fail. Uh, they, and then they go back to the one other device that seems to answer the questions, and that's the, the Tench. The Tench is a kind of a quasi-living or, organism, but it seems to have some mechanical functions. It's one of the creatures on this planet, and they talked to it in an earlier chapter. 
you know, to get answers. It's kind of a printer. It's essentially a printer. If you put a pen in front of it, it spits back a pen. But if you put a piece of paper with a question on it, it will try to, it answers that question, kind of like the universe answering it, kind of like a, almost like a, a magic eight ball. And so they seek out the tench and they ask it a very specific question. And the question they ask it is simply, what is Perseus 9? Perseus 9 is, is something that's been tattooed on, on the bodies of, of these people. So they want to realize what it is. And when they ask that question, the tension explodes and the world around them begins to, to break down. And, and that's pretty much what happens in the last, rest of chapter 14 is just the breakdown of this, this world they're in. Um, that's it. That's, that's uh, the conclusion of chapter 14. But I will say about this that Seth Morley experiences this, these final moments in this artificial reality as experiencing the form destroyer in his full glory because he sees the building collapse he sees the world around him collapse he eventually starts to see the whole squib that he's trying to escape in break <clears throat> break down and he kind of commits himself to dying and being embracing the form destroyer which is something other characters have essentially done in various ways we, we get a lot of the death vision the final moments of a lot of characters before they die and a lot of them are are you know in a theological mystical moment when they die seeing one character for instance sees the, the final judgment of man some seem to see the form destroyer and and on and on so there's this is just kind of continuing that theme of of these religious perspectives being real in this world that that's a major uh, distinguishing factor of this world is that this world does have a god um, but it all breaks up it all breaks down and and he just sort of waits to, to die. So chapter 15 uh, is, the last two chapters of the book are set on a, on a spaceship called Perseus 9. That's the answer to the question. What is Perseus 9? Perseus 9 is the ship that all 14 of these people are, are on. And the first person we see waking up from this alternate reality, the first 14 chapters of the novel are all set in this alternate reality. And... Uh, Glenn Belsner, you know, is the first to wake up and he takes off this cylinder off of his head and immediately says, like, that was a bad one, referring to the simulation that they had just ran, uh, you know, or he says it to himself, right? And that suggesting that, that they've been doing these for a while and, and they've been getting worse and worse and, you know, more bitter, more hostile, more violent. Um, but they do talk about it and they begin to debrief. And everyone's alive. The people who died in this alternate reality are alive and well now. They all take off their helmets. And they, they start to talk about their experiences. They piece together what they can. Because the simulations that are made are made by the computer, but they're also made by the people who are in the simulation, so they contribute things to it. So everything is like a, a gestalt in a way. And in this way, we're back to a theme in... in um, Galactic Pod Healer, but while in Galactic Pod Healer, it's seen as a positive thing, it's seen as something that gives people meaning. Here, it's injected really the wrong way, and, and it, it becomes toxic and, and horrible. So, like in Galactic Pod Healer, the gestalt that people join with Glimmen is able to raise health scala, it's able to give people new meaning, a new restart on life, even possibly eternal life, or close to it. In this world, it's just uh, bitterness and hostility, violence, weirdness, uh, 
kind of decay and and nothing creative comes out of it. it it's it's like a bad dream, really, if you think about this. It's um, if you ever have that dream where you don't know why you're there or there's some goal and it's not clearly defined, you know, and you can't reach your destination. That's what's going on in this this novel. Uh, again and again, where characters can't f get to destinations, uh, th everything is cryptic, everything is odd, and people don't know why, right? And one reason everything is so confused here is because everyone is adding a little bit to the story from their own subjective experiences, and it doesn't fit together right. It's like a, putting together a puzzle with pieces from different puzzles, right? And if you try to cram it together, you might get something eventually, but it's going to be really gross and malformed. That's essentially what we have here. They do, though, remember enough, and it seems that the memories of these simulations seem to fade over time, the same way a dream does. So he's definitely the thought of a... Dick here is trying to suggest that these are like dreams. Uh, but they do talk about the theology a little bit, and it's kind of interesting because this is a book about religion in a way. And, you know, I got to go back, actually, to the opening preface to the novel where Dick suggests that the theology in this book is somewhat original. Quote, the theology in this novel is not an analog of any known religion. It stems from an attempt made by William Sterrell and myself to develop an abstract logical system of religious thought based on the arbitrary postulate that God exists. And then he, he explains that he also got ideas from Bishop James A. Pike, who, of course, we'll talk about in future novels. But here's what's written in, in this chapter. What did we make up, he asked himself blearily. The entire theology, he relays. They had fed into the ship's computer all the data they had into their possession concerning advanced religions into TENCH889B. By the way, that's where the word tench comes from. Okay, all, okay. Into TENCH889B had gone the elaborate information dealing with Judaism, Christianity, Mohammedism, Zoroastrianism, Tibetan Buddhism, a complex mass out of which Tench 889B was able to distill a composite religion, a synthetic of every factor involved. We made it up, Seth Morley thought, bewildered. Memory of Spektowski's book still filled his mind. The intercessor, the manufacturer, the walker on earth, even the ferocity of the form destroyer. Distillate the, of, of man's total experience with God, a tremendous logical system of confounding web deduced by the computer from the postulates given it, in particular the postulate that God existed. Okay, sure. But that contradicts what Dick says in the preface. He, he, clearly here he's getting it from different religions. And he doesn't even mention Hinduism. But that's uh, clearly one of the influences on this, on this theological system. Um, with this, they, they talk a little bit about their future. And that's really where, where this novel gets very bleak, is that these characters don't have a future. They are basically lost in space. They're orbiting a planet. There's some malfunction. They can't get to their destination anymore. So they're in, they're just waiting to die, right? And they even talk about how the older people or the people who killed themselves previously are lucky. The simulations, which were entertainment devices originally, become a means of them for survival. And some simulations like this one are a means of catharsis where they can work out their hostilities and their anger toward one another. And it's a very, very bleak look at the frontier. It's a very, very bleak look at the eternal return. Um, you know, there's really nowhere for them to go. And if we want to compare this novel to Galactic Pot Healer, I think we need to bear in mind that the setting is so different. Uh, the characters in Galactic Pot Healer had potential to break free of their entrapment. The characters here can't. The, the, there's, Dick puts them in a place where they're doomed. 
And so we can understand why this is a more pessimistic novel. But if we want to take both works as a metaphor for our world, um, certainly there's more hope in Galactic Apothecary than this novel, right? If we want to say that we're in an eternal return, that really finding meaning in this world is hopeless, that even finding meaning in one another is hopeless, right? Even the Gestalt doesn't get us anywhere. If that's where we're at, it, it's, it's really a dark place. Even the Galactic Apothecary, which has a dystopia which is pretty bad, it's pretty brutal, but there's all kinds of hope in people coming together, in relationships, in, in interconnectedness, in the gestalt. Everything from the game in that novel, this kind of internet uh, translation game people play, to the relationship he has with um, that woman, that alien woman, to the unification with Glimmon. All of them provide a way out of that. And if that's the metaphor for the world we live in, that's just you know that's good that shows that there's hope for us but in this novel there isn't that hope and you don't want to read this one thinking there's a way out because there really isn't there's there's maybe a little window of optimism in chapter 16 the final chapter of the book but it's it's not very reassuring to be honest so that's what happens in chapter 15 in chapter 16 it really begins with a little bit more of the history of the ship where where we get some exposition where all this is explained um, they've been doing this for, for 15 years <clears throat> since they since the ship has broken down. There's been a lot of suicides on the sh on the ship. There's been characters who who have died previously. So once the crew was much larger, but the, it's kind of stabilized at this population of 14. These are the ones who have gotten through the psychological trauma of of essentially the end of their life or the end of any meaning in their life, and then you know, resorted themselves to just staying alive and keeping themselves sane. But um, as we leave our characters, we are told that essentially the only hope is death. Now, I said before that there's a little bit of hope in the, in the, in the novel, and, and it's in chapter 16 as well, where Seth Morley sees the intercessor. Um, and what do we make of this? I don't know. Uh, he sees the intercessor, who's, of course, a made-up god, someone from their gestalt delusion, right? The, the simulated reality they made for themselves. He asks the intercessor to free him, and he's freed. And, and that's the end of the character, Seth Morley. Uh, now, what happens to him? He doesn't seem to open a door into space and kill himself. His body's not found. There's a short scene in the final page of the novel where Mary Morley talks to the captain, Glenn Belsner, about where her husband is, and there's no sign of him on the ship. There's no sign that he you know, killed himself. They don't find a body. So it seems that the intercessor really did take him. Um, but to where, for what purpose, we don't know. So it's not a very satisfying conclusion. It's just, you know, the fact that this religion is manifest in this world, of course, you know, I don't know. We can imagine it's another layer of simulated reality, perhaps, or somehow their belief in him in that world made him real. I don't know, or maybe they just constructed through, the other way of reading this is by putting together all these religions and imagining a religion, they got a religion right. And the intercessor really is the true deity. However you try to interpret this, you know, I don't think it really matters in the end. This novel really doesn't give us any escape. Maybe escape through some kind of evaporation from, from the world. And that's what Seth Morley does. Uh, Mary Morley and the others look to the future but uh, there's really no hope for the future. There's, there's just bleakness. Um, 
I'll just quote from the final page here. She lay down on a cot which belonged to her, anchored with her own peculiar cubicle, plugged into a life protect mechanism, and then with relief placed a cylinder over her head and shoulders. Its modulated hum sounded faintly in her ears, a reassuring noise, and one that she had heard so many times in the past over the long and weary years. Darkness covered her. She breathed into herself, accepting it, demanding it. The darkness took her over, and presently she realized that it was night. She yearned then for daylight, for the world to be exposed, and for a new world which she cannot yet see. And then she jumps into an alternate reality. They start again. They do it once again, just to keep saying, just to keep alive. And in this universe now, she doesn't have a husband, Seth, morally anymore. She actually goes back all the way to Tekel Uparshan, the same place she started earlier. So we got an eternal return. The only change is she doesn't have a husband anymore because Seth morally is not locked into the, the, the fantasy. And that's it. That's the maze of death. Um, I do like this novel. It's one I've, I've probably read more than, than any others. Um, one of the first of his novels that I actually read, and, and one I've come back to a lot. It's just now I do prefer Galactic Popular because it is more hopeful, more optimistic. I'm, I'm not one who fetishizes pessimism in science fiction. I, I think it has its place. I think the warnings of science fiction are important. Um, I, I'm kind of done, though, with science fiction that doesn't really have an escape for us. I, I don't know what to do with these anymore. I, when I was younger, I think I did, but for the life of me, I can't put my mind back into where it was 15 years ago when I saw in these works something more meaningful. Um, I find it interesting. I find it powerful. I find it uh, kind of fascinating, but I still find it very, very frustrating as, a, as an older reader. Um, so I don't know. Um, I think that's good, though, because I'm, I'm getting to the age that these characters are in. And I'm thinking about things about, like, long-term meaning in life. And, and, and I'm feeling, like, things like the drudgery of, of work and things that used to give me pleasure don't anymore. And these are things that happen when one gets older, right? And I think, I think there's a place for books like this to reflect on these issues. But I still think Lactic Pod Healer, because it is so hopeful, is a, is a better novel that, to deal with these issues. But I think they can go together, and I think if you read them together, like a book club could read these two novels together and I think have some really good conversations. So anyways, that's my overall review of, of A Maze of Death. Um, check it out. I, I think it's a quick read. It's, it's, you know, it's not much longer than Galactic Potter. I think they're about the same length. The audio books for each are like six hours. Um, thematically, what do we do with this book? Well, one is uh, work and, and meaning again. This is pretty much word for word, thematically the same as in Galactic Popular. Uh, different conclusions, as I said many times, but the problem is the same. Characters trying to find meaningful work and not finding frustrated in that quest for meaningful work. So, I don't know. There's not much more that I want to say about that. <clears throat> but especially look at Glenn Belsner's speech in the middle chapters of the novel where he talks about invention and, and his desire, his one desire to just invent something meaningful. Um, a second theme is is just religion, and Dick does, I think, make a valiant effort to piece together these different religions into one system that sort of works. He This isn't the first time he's done this, though. He has played with the idea of a religion that's real and provable and scientifically just you know justifiable in, in the eye in the sky. Of course, that was a, a synthetic reality, too. 
And there's a lot we can make of the fact that the intercessor and these gods or this version of God seems to be real. I think um, you, you run enough simulations about religion. You, like, just imagine this. We plug in to a computer all of the world religions, all the, like, all the textbooks from world religions courses, and all the theological texts from all the traditions, everything from shamanism, Shinto, Druidism, you know, Clophonic religions, the Greeks, Christianity, all of it, into a computer and have it use this to construct then a new religion that's based on all of them. There are common lines, right? I think you would then get to something that would be like the Jungian archetype of, of like the base religion of humanity. And that's probably the closest to what the real religion is. I think that's what Dick's trying to say here. Although I think it could have been more well-developed. Um, you know, I, I think I said something in a previous episode, like I, you know, I said, why did, why did the editor pick Maze of Death and not some other 70s novels? And then I realized there's two other volumes of Dick's novels published by the Library of America. The, the first is novels of the 60s, and then this one is Vallis and later novels. It's, it's the three Vallis novels and then Maze of Death. And I said, well, why not do, or why not do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? Or why not, um, what's the other one? The Flow My Tears or Scanner Darkly. And it turns out those are actually in the second volume. So the editor, Jonathan Letham, put Maze of Death with Vallis out of order out of chronological order because he thought it's thematically tied to, to Vallis. So um, keep that in mind when we get to Vallis. We're going to try to look for parallels and overlaps. So that's religion. Mental illness is another major theme. It's something Dick throws into most of his novels. It's, it's dealt with a lot more in this novel. The idea of you know patients in a lunatic asylum getting free or being experimented on is something he's done before. Um, of course, I think he's less optimistic about the lunatics compared to the novel um, what's it, The Clans of the Alphane Moon, where the mentally ill seem to create a functioning society. Um, but in the mid-60s, he was really interested in mental illness, a little bit less so in the, in the 70s, but it still comes up a lot. It's, it's on his mind a lot. Uh, once again, we have adultery. We have the, the near affair between Susan Smart and, and Seth Morley. We have Mary killing Suzanne Smart over adultery. She, Suzanne Smart herself, is a serial adulterer, adulterer and seducer. So, um, maybe probably a sex addict or someone with bipolar, not bipolar, a borderline personality disorder. Um, another important theme here is frontier. I haven't talked about frontier in a while because Dick hasn't really said too much uh, about frontiers. It's not the focus of his work as it was earlier in his career. But we got to come back, and now we can talk about history once again. And it's something I've always been meaning to do is to finish my series on history. Maybe I'll do when I'm done with all the Philip Dick novels is come back and maybe do some essays and finish up my thoughts on the frontier. I've kind of done part one of three. I'll just kind of tell you what my thoughts on this. Um, part one, which is an episode way back, is about... The frontier is basically this Turneresque version of the frontier as the place of rebirth of, of, of humanity. For Turner, it was the rebirth of American democracy, but for Dick, it's, it's a potentiality. The frontier is hopeful. By the mid-60s, the frontier just becomes another extension of, of the suburbs. So that's especially st the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, um, Martian time slip. The frontier becomes much more banal. It's just the suburbs. And then I think in the 70s, the frontier 
It's complicated because we're going to have works like Divine Invasion and our friends from Frolox 8 where the frontier becomes a place of salvation again. But in many other cases, the frontier becomes a eternal return. And this is the best novel that shows this idea of the frontier as an eternal return. I'd also look at the short story um, about the time travelers who are in a loop and other you know, there's a few other stories that have that loop idea in it. So that's kind of a third interpretation of the frontier that Dick posits. And it's, of course, later in his career that he gets there. I think it ties to this idea of kind of the empire never ending and like power not being able to be displaced. It's always reforming itself in new ways. But um, there's certainly the, the frontier is in this novel a lot. It's just a failed frontier. It's, it's, it's gross. It's decaying. You know, well, that leads me then to to entropy. Entropy is a theme in this story, like it is in Galactic Pot Healer. Everything is decaying here. Uh, you have the concept manifest in the form destroyer, and so it's obviously something Dick is very, very interested in. It it comes up in almost all of his novels in some way, and it's here as well. So, um, those are what I think the major themes of A Maze of Death are. So, compare and contrast them to other works that also. Uh, explore explore these themes. So that does it. That does it for Maze of Death. Um, a nice short novel. Um, so next we're going to be looking at Dick's second, the second novel Dick published in 1970 called Our Friends from Frolax 8. And it's, it's one I really love. It doesn't have too much weirdness in it. That's some, but not as much. It doesn't have alternate realities. It doesn't really deal with uh, theological issues too much. It's a good dystopia. We have a human population oppressed by a dictatorial state. We have a res movement culture. We have resistance. We have uh, intergalactic savior or savior from another planet. But I think what I love most about our friends for Frolox 8 is we're we get to see resistance in action and, and, and actually resistance by a large group of people, a movement, a movement of resistance. And it's very much a novel of the late 60s. Uh, and I think it might be his novel of the late 60s more than any others because it does deal with uh, it's like a, it's I think it's a response to 68 in some ways so I'm going to um, have a lot to say about the 60s and Dick's reflections on the 60s and the 60s radicals in in his novel where he tries to meditate on that our friends from full Eight. so in the meantime give, leave, leave me your thoughts about uh, a maze of death if there's anything I misinterpreted or got wrong or, or forgot, please let me know. Um, I'm sure there's a lot I didn't mention. So just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for, for listening. I'll see you next time with part one of my review of our friends from With a clock that always